Well, friends, we are in Matthew chapter 2. So go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, we want to make sure you have one. They're available at the information table or right outside the door, actually. So you could have one to follow along our study this morning, and you can keep it if you don't have one. Um, or if you forgot yours for the day, then, then go ahead and borrow one of those. But we are in Matthew chapter 2 today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the word. Lord, what a pleasure it is and, and how comforting it is for us to be able to come and just sit ready to hear from you, to know that your Holy Spirit, Lord, is the author and is our teacher and that you come and you minister to your children as we open up our hearts to receive from you. And Father, I'm just grateful that we can trust your word so that we can come to a safe place just to sit, listen, and learn what the Lord might have for us. And so, Father, do your ministering work this morning in our room here, as well as in the Sunday school rooms with the kids. Lord, bless your word today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to continue verse by verse now through Matthew chapter, the book. And, and as I said, we're in chapter 2. In our last study together, we, we spent some time considering this idea that Mary, this woman, that she would miraculously conceive a child and she would bring that forth that child. We call that the virgin birth. And that that little baby boy, Jesus, will go on to be the center of this book um, that we are considering. Now specifically last week, we spent our time focused on mostly Joseph's response to this news. And as we looked at, it seemed as if Joseph found himself sort of in the place where he had to do what he had to do. Uh, maybe reluctantly, but nonetheless, the circumstances were such that he had to divorce this woman that he was engaged to, and remember the, the culture was a little bit different than ours, that the engagement was pretty much like a marriage. And here's this lady, and she's pregnant, he's not the father, and so obviously she must have been immoral, and so he had to do what he had to do. He had to get rid of her. But what we, we considered and we looked at was that Joseph was a merciful man. So even though he knew he had to do the right thing, get rid of her, he was also merciful, and he didn't want to cause embarrassment to her, he didn't want to cause public shaming for her, and, and perhaps even have her stoned to death. And so he decided, all right, I know what I'm going to do. I'm just going to sort of quietly divorce her and then sort of go on. And that was Joseph's plan, we saw, but it wasn't God's plan. And so God has to intervene in sort of this miraculous way. And through this dream, God sends forth an angel and begins to reassure Joseph. And I say reassure because there was a part of Joseph where everything in circumstance, life was telling him, this is what you got to do. That's the easy answer. But there was a part of his heart that knew that wasn't what he was supposed to be doing. And so this angel comes along and says, you're hesitant, essentially. You're hesitant about these things is because I want you to go a different direction. Your plan is not my plan. And so Joseph, he obeys. Difficult circumstances, but Joseph obeys. Now all of those events took place in what city? Anybody know? Town. Right. Haven't heard it. Nazareth. Nazareth, I heard it from our friend. All right, so all of those events took place in Nazareth, okay? Now, if you look at chapter 2, verse 1, look at the first verse. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Yeah, you've heard the stories. Okay, now, Nazareth, the, the nation of Israel, it, it's kind of like New Jersey. Think of it like a rectangle. The nation is cut it in half. The bottom half is pretty much Judea. Take the top half, cut that in half. So you have thirds now. The top part is Galilee, Samaria, Judea. Okay? In the Galilee region, that's where Nazareth is. In the Judea region, that's where Bethlehem is. It's about 90 miles away. So everything that we looked at last week, all that time we, we talked about last week, that takes place up in the north. 
Now the chapter begins, and all of a sudden we're 90 miles south, when 90 miles south would have taken you weeks to get to, and they're down in Bethlehem. And so we, we kind of have to ask this question, but how did they get down to Bethlehem? What's going on here? You know, is this story, you know, is something a little fishy here? And, and nothing is fishy. The answer, though, is not found for us in Matthew. It's actually found over in Luke. You don't need to turn there, but let me just show you one verse which basically summarizes what's going on. Chapter Luke, uh, Ch Luke chapter 2, verse 1 says, In those days, the, the days of Mary finding out she's pregnant, Joseph having a dream and all that, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all of the world should be registered. And then the story goes on to say you have to go back to the place of your fathers and both Mary and Joseph, but for our purposes now, it really only matters about Joseph, both of them, their fathers are from Bethlehem, which means they've got to get back to Bethlehem. And so that's what brings them down to Bethlehem. Mary, as you know, probably seven and a half months pregnant, maybe eight months pregnant here in this process, and word comes out, you guys got to go to Bethlehem. What do you think Mary and Joseph's response is? This is going to be awesome. Field trip. You know, I can't wait to go on this trip while I'm eight and a half months pregnant or something. More likely than not, what Mary and Joseph are thinking is something like this. Oh no, God, this is terrible. God, you've got to change these circumstances. It can't be like this, Lord. Lord, this is unfair. This is unjust. The Romans intervene for us, God. I guarantee you, these guys are praying that God will do a miracle here. And God doesn't do a miracle here. Because God has, oh, i got a huh over there. Because God's plans are complete. He was clearing his throat. All right, well, <laughs> fake it if you have to. All right. God's plans here are that they would get to Bethlehem. And so a lot of times, like Mary and Joseph, we don't understand what God is doing. And so we begin to cry out to God, and we say to God that he, he has to, or if he would be so kind, to change these things. Or we begin to tell God that these things aren't fair or that they're unjust. And yet God, He continues to allow things to play out just as He has planned so that His purposes would be accomplished. And you and I, we don't necessarily always understand what God is doing. And our responsibility in those instances is to keep trusting. And so no doubt, I'm sure many of us in this room were struggling to do that. We understand that. All right, God's plans, they're better than mine. He sees everything. I don't understand everything. And, but yet we're struggling with continuing to trust. And for you, if that's the case where you are right now, for myself, I remind you there's a wonderful account in Mark chapter 9. It's the story of a guy, his kid is sick, and so he comes to Jesus and he says, please, you've got to come and you've got to heal my kid. And the story goes on there and things aren't working out and the kid, word comes to him that the kid has actually died. He's no longer, she's no longer sick but now dead. And Jesus kind of looks right at the guy and he says, just keep believing. And the man says, I do believe, Lord, but you've got to help my unbelief. And see, I think that defines us, doesn't it? We, we do believe, but we sure sink back into not believing a lot, pretty quickly, pretty frequently. And so we go back to the Lord, and it's okay to go back to the Lord. Sometimes we think, I better not admit to him that I'm having trouble believing, or he's not going to think I'm a good soldier or something for the cause. He knows you're having trouble believing. And so go back to him and ask him for strength to keep believing. And I think that Mary and Joseph probably had one of those crisis-type experiences where they were wondering where God is. Well, God was in all of this. And so, if we look at our passage today, as I said in verse 1, it says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. And they were saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? 
For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Well, if you notice verse 1, Matthew doesn't really get into the details. He just simply states, now after Jesus was born. We also see in verse 1 that he, he says that he was born in Bethlehem. If you want the real story, the real details, if you want to get down to how everybody was feeling about things, then you need to read that in the book of Luke, Luke chapter 2. But Matthew just sort of lays out what happened because Matthew's more interested in the next thing that happened, the next story, and that is of these wise men that are visiting. So if you look there in the latter portion of verse 1 into verse 2, it says that wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, and then look at the end of verse 2, so that they would worship him. Now Jesus was born in Bethlehem. These guys come to Jerusalem. Jerusalem and Bethlehem are, uh, they are about seven miles apart from one another. As a matter of fact, today, the suburbs of Jerusalem, wouldn't be Jerusalem proper, but the suburbs of Jerusalem essentially t- touch up to uh, Bethlehem. They're that close to one another. So here are these wise men. We saw in here that they're following a star, and they end up there in Jerusalem. Now, we have traditions about a lot of things in the Bible that are fine. There's nothing necessarily wrong with many of them. But there are traditions about these wise men. They're not necessarily biblical, but they're traditions. One of them is this, that there are three wise men. Now, the text doesn't say that there are three wise men. The reason why we have oftentimes, or people have concluded that there were three wise men is because there were three gifts. And so, everybody got a gift? You got to bring a gift when you come, you know, and so everybody brings a gift, so there must be three of them. But there could have been 300 of them that came. We we just don't know. Um, So, this idea that there was only three of them is probably not accurate. Tradition also suggests that these three wise men were actually kings. And so we sing songs about we three kings of Orient are, bearing gifts we've traveled so far. Uh, But the text gives no evidence to support that tradition either. There are some Old Testament verses which talks about the kings coming and bringing gifts to the king. But the context of those passages, which are Psalm 68, Isaiah 49, and a few other places, the context really seems to imply the second coming of Christ and that the kings are going to come and bring gifts. But maybe that is why we, we say that these guys were kings. A third tradition is that these wise men, that they showed up on the scene shortly after Jesus' birth. So in our context, they would have visited at the hospital uh, where Jesus was born. In fact, in Spanish tradition, which is carried over to many of our Caribbean nations, Central and South American nations as well, these three wise men, that they arrive on January 6th is just about two weeks after the supposed birth of Christ. Now, I don't know Spanish, so I'm going to give it a shot. I think we have some Spanish. My friend, you correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, Dia de los Reyes Megos. That's what I said. Yes, yes. Now, essentially, it's uh, the day of the three kings. Is that what that means? Uh, the day. Say who what? Yes. Well, there you go. Now, it's a fun tradition. I don't mind it. I would like to go to this particular thing because it's associated with the parade 
And if I understand correctly, these three kings will come into town, probably at the end of the parade or whatever, and then the gifts are begin to be distributed to the kids. I think parents actually give Santa, if you will, a gift, and then he passes it out to the kids or something like that. So the kids really like this holiday. I would like this holiday. Somebody's bringing gifts? All right, great, that sounds good. But the text pretty clearly indicates that it's a tradition, it's fine, it's not satanic or anything like that, um, but it's this tradition, but it's probably not biblical. And here are some of the reasons why. Here are some of the clues. If you look at verse 1 again, there it speaks of the fact that these wise men see a star from the east and they begin to make their way to the city there. Well, if they're coming from the east, which would have likely been Babylon at the time, that it would have taken them months to make their way to Jerusalem. And so Jesus would have been, him and his mom would have been uh, dismissed from the hospital, so to speak. And so that's one indicator. If you also look at, look at verse 11. We didn't read it yet, but look down to verse 11. Notice when they get there, it says, and going into the house, they saw the child, not the baby. All right, but they see now a child. And then also notice verse 11. It says they went into the house, not the stable with the manger like the shepherds went and found when in Luke chapter 2 when they came to visit. And so three clues to why that tradition may not be accurate. Another one might be, a final clue that we might look to, is Herod's response. And so if you look down to verse 16, I'll tell the story quickly, we're going to go back through it today, but the wise men come, they come to the king there in Jerusalem, a guy by the name of Herod, and Herod, it seems a little concerned about this idea. You mean there's another king? Well, why don't you find out where he is and let me know? You know, and he's going to kill him, essentially. And so the wise men, they catch on to this, and so they go visit Jesus, and then they, they decide a dream, an angel, they're not going back to Herod, and so they go another way. Herod finds this out, and he's furious. And so we read in verse 16, it said, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he became furious, and he sent and he killed all the male children in Bethlehem in all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. So apparently in the conversation with them, he, he says, so, so when did you see this star? And you know, maybe they said, well, it was about 18 months ago, something like that. And so Herod, it seems, he says, you know what? Just bump it up to two. We'll take care of all of them. We'll kill off any possible rival to me whatsoever. And so it seems that this idea is more of a tradition than it is biblical. It's, again, it's not that big a deal. If you want to celebrate the parade, I don't think it's a problem. Now, this caravan of people, so three wise men, maybe 300 wise men, we know it's going to be a caravan of people. A caravan of people, they arrive in Jerusalem. It seems to me, though I don't know from the text, that they go to the temple and they begin to inquire. They begin to talk. And, hey, we saw this star. Where is he that is born king? All that stuff. Word now filters over to Herod's palace. And if you look in chapter 2, verse 3, it says, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. Now Herod was troubled, because Herod's a troubled guy, and these things cause him to be troubled. All of Jerusalem is troubled, is because who knows what Herod's going to do? That guy's nuts. And so there's a little bit of a stir that is in town. Let me tell you a few things that we know about Herod. One, Herod, more specifically, historically, the man is known as Herod the Great. There are other Herods in history, Herod Antipas and, and other Herods as well. Herod is the title more than it is a person's name. 
It's kind of like Pharaoh. So there was a bunch of Pharaohs in history. So this particular guy is known as Herod the Great. Herod the Great ruled over the Roman province, if you will, of Judea for 37 years. 34 of those years he specifically ruled in the city of Jerusalem. And he was placed in the city of Jerusalem by the emperor of Rome because he was particularly good at dealing with rebellion. He, well, we learned some things about him. He was a remarkable man. He was very good at what he did in so many ways. He was particularly good in so-called public works programs. And so the second temple is commonly referred to as Herod's temple. It became one of the, like the man-made wonders of the world that people came to travel to to view. Um, so that, that's called Herod's temple or the second temple. The Roman aqueducts, the system that he brought into Israel at that particular time, he oversaw those. If you ever go to Jerusalem, one of the most remarkable places you will go, the only problem is they bring you there as soon as you get off the plane and you can't even see straight because you're so tired, but it's a place called Caesarea Maritima. It is unbelievable. Um, he had that entire place built. Another place that you could go in, in Israel to visit is Masada. Masada was a, is a fortress city built at the top of a mountain. It is remarkable. Uh, and he had that built. So as far as public works programs, he was a pretty remarkable guy in that way. He also maintained his power for 37 years, which is significant. But part of the way that he did that is he was a ruthless and cruel man. He was a guy that would do anything to maintain his power. It is said that when he came into power, that he had the entire Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the Jewish ruling society of the people. They really didn't have much power in Jerusalem, more influence, if you will. Like, let's not bother anybody. What does the Sanhedrin think we should do? If Herod didn't want to have a problem with the Jews, he would go with the, the Sanhedrin. Well, when he came into power, he had every one of those guys killed, 70 of them killed. Brought in a whole new group so everybody knew you work for me. You know, and that sort of thing. That's pretty cruel if you ask me. I don't know, nobody seems impacted by that at all. You know, you're a bunch of hard-hearted people. All right, so we move on here. Uh, he had over 300 court officials of his, people that worked for him, killed. Historically, we know he had his wife executed. He had his mother-in-law executed. It's probably a joke in there or something like that. Um, I would never. It's terrible. Um, he had at least three of his sons killed. His own sons. Caesar Augustus, the emperor, word filtered back to him. He didn't really care, by the way, Caesar Augustus, as long as order is kept. But Caesar Augustus said this about Herod. He said, it is safer to be Herod's pig than one of his sons. A very ruthless, cruel man. You know, it's interesting, historically, this event where he had all the male children killed in Bethlehem that were two years old and younger, it's not even recorded historically as having occurred during Herod's administration. Now, some people think, see, the Bible's not true. The reason why it's not his, recorded historically is it was no big deal in his administration. So he killed a bunch of Jewish boys. Who cares? He kills everybody. You see, this guy was nuts. And so here, this is the guy that is the ruler. And the wise men, following this unusual star, they find themselves now before this ruthless ruler. It seems as if the star led them in the direction of Bethlehem and Jerusalem, because remember, they're right next to each other, that it led them in that direction, and then it seems as if the star sort of faded. It, it stopped shining, if you will. So here are these people, they come now to Jerusalem thinking, well, where else would the star lead us? If we're talking about God's King, God's Messiah, obviously it's bringing us to Jerusalem. They come there, they end up there in Jerusalem, and they begin inquiring. So where is he? Where's who? 
the one that was born king of the Jews. We don't know what you're talking about. You're talking about Herod? No, I'm not talking about... And, you know, there's this conversation that is going, not to mention the fact that hundreds of people coming into a town on a journey is going to draw attention. And word gets back to Herod. And so Herod summons these guys, or somebody brings these guys, and Herod begins, if you will, to grill these guys. And so he says, so who are you people? And why are you here? And what's this about a king? And where can I find this king? You know, and he goes through this whole process with them. And the wise men, it seems, they respond and they say, we thought you would know where you could find the king. We could find the king. And so Herod here, and somewhere during the conversation, word, it seems, turned from this idea of a king to God's Messiah. And Herod must say, you want to know where God's Messiah is or where he's going to be? I, could, I know people that know. And so Herod, it says in verse 4, he assembles all the chief priests and all of the scribes of the people, and he asked them where the Christ was to be born. Now the thing that I find interesting about this is these chief priests, and that would, obviously the name implies the leading priests of the day, the scribes, they would have been like the Bible teachers of the day. These chief priests and these scribes immediately have an answer. So where's the Messiah going to be born? Oh, that's an easy one. And they go on and they explain. They say in verse 5, in Bethlehem of Judea. And then they say, you want a Bible verse for it? Blam, blam. Matthew cha or Micah chapter 5, verse 2. And they quote the Bible verse. Could you do that? I couldn't do that. You know, just off the top of my head. They quote out this Bible verse and it says, this is what it says. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. They knew it off the top of their heads. The Old Testament prophet Micah, again, Micah chapter 5, verse 2, prophesied that he would come to Bethlehem, he being the king of the Jews, 700 years earlier. And quoting this passage, they're able to quickly answer Herod and reveal to him and the others the location of this king. But if you notice in the passage, and we already read it, they never go themselves. Do you catch that? So they're very quick. They know the Bible answer, but they themselves never go. And I think these guys are an example of folks, believers, in, in a sense, we're making the connection here, that they have the correct head knowledge all about the Messiah, but their heart holds no affinity for the Messiah at all. And sadly, as a result of that, they missed him altogether. And I think the risk for every one of us that has been in a relationship with the Lord for any length of time and the risk for those of us that are maybe in a position of leadership, like a pastor or a teacher or a mom or a dad working in the lives of your kids, the risk for us is this. We can learn our Bibles, and we can answer all the questions, and we can even point other people to Christ and direct other people to Christ, but we ourselves are missing Him. And so we can point other people to go find Jesus so that they can worship Him, and we ourselves, we remain worshipless if you will. And that's not good. And I just encourage you, if you've been in the Lord for a while, and if you're serving in ministry in one way or another, don't let your heart become calloused to the truths of the Word of God. Because they should always lead us to the place, our relationship with Christ should always lead us to the place where we go and we worship. And here are these guys pointing other people to the place where they can go worship, but they themselves are not worshipers. Well, let's continue the passage. Verse 7. It says, then Herod excuse me, summoned the wise men secretly, and he ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, 
Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and they worshipped him. And then, opening their treasure, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So verses 7 and 8 seem to imply to me that this ruthlessness of Herod was sort of seeping through when he said, hey, you know, go find out where he is. Tell me so I could come and worship him too. They, they were sort of like put on their guard a little bit. They had an idea that this guy wasn't being really truthful with them. I can't say that definitively. But I suspect that Herod wants to find out how long ago the star appeared so we can sort of narrow down what we're looking for. If it appeared a week ago, go find a week-old infant baby. If it appeared 18 months ago, find a little kid running around causing all sorts of trouble for his parents. You know, that's what we're looking for. So he gives them instructions to return with the exact location so he can go and worship. Look at verse 9. So the caravan, they head out, and they notice in verse 9, if you take notice, I should say, it seems that the star now appears again. Maybe it was appearing all the time, but it seems that it appears again. And now notice what it says in verse 9. It settles over the place where the child was. That could be translated that it stood over the head of the child. And it's suggested that this is the reason that a lot of sort of ancient and medieval art depicts Jesus and others with a little halo around his head. That it's the idea that it stood right over his head. Maybe that's what it looked like, who knows. But either way, the star is on the move again. And so, as verse 10 says, so were the wise men. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And following the star, they come to Bethlehem. And notice in verse 11, and going into the house where this star is, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshipped him. Now, as an act of worship, they bring gifts to Jesus. You know, and let me just make this point about worship. I think that oftentimes, I won't say every time, but I won't say sometimes, I think oftentimes we understand what it means to go to worship to come to the worship service, so to speak. And the reason why I say this is because very often you will hear people express, maybe they're not going to go out grumbling and complaining, but you know, how you doing? How was church? And oftentimes you hear people express something to this effect. I didn't get anything out of today's service. You probably say that a lot. No, hopefully not. You know, but I didn't get anything out of today's service. And the implication is that we're supposed to get a lot out of today's service. And I, I think it should be edifying and valuable and all that. But coming to worship is not coming to an experience. So if you're here singing the songs and you're listening to the Word and you're meditating on these things and you don't get the goosebumps, that doesn't mean you didn't have a worshipful experience during your time of service. Because ultimately, worship is not about the experience you get. Worship is about coming and bringing your gifts to Him and your praise to Him and your adoration to Him. Worship is not about what you get, but rather what you give. And by that I mean your praise, your adoration, your wonder, and you're all. Now specifically, these guys, they open up their treasures and they present some gifts to this child king. We see the gifts are listed there in verse 11, the, the final portion of the verse. It says they bring gold, 
They bring frankincense and they bring myrrh. And again, because there's three gifts, people think there's three kings. That may or may not be the case. But they bring gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Seems to be peculiar gifts to bring a child. You would think, a little boy, you'd bring a baseball glove or a truck or something. Maybe a precious moments Bible for the kid and his parents to enjoy or something like that. But the reality is, I like, I don't know if you've seen this or if it's appropriate, but whatever. We'll go for it. Uh, what's that guy's name? The comedian guy? Oh, gee whiz. Tim Hawkins, you know, and he says that they bring gold. And gold's nice, he says, but here's a kid shivering out in the cold. Bring a kid a blanket is what he says there. So that's, un, that's not good. That's inappropriate. I shouldn't have brought that up. Anyhow, it's funny. If you, if you look at the guy, he's pretty funny. The reality is this, about these gifts. The gifts are more than mere commemorations. You know, you bring a gift, people had a baby, you bring a gift or whatever. It's more than mere commemorations of Jesus' birth. It's more than just bringing a fun toy for the kid to play with to keep him entertained. But each one of these gifts are prophetic in nature. And so whether these kings really know it or not, when they are coming and presenting these gifts, they're saying something about this boy king. This boy that's going to grow up to be, and he is, the king of the Jews. So the first gift that they bring is gold. And gold is designed to speak of his royalty, that he will be the king. Frankincense is essentially a perfume. It's sort of like a potpourri, a little basket of potpourri. And that speaks of a couple things. One, that, that sweet fragrance speaks of his sinless perfection, but I think it could also speak of the role that this baby is going to play. Because Frank incense, this idea of incense, always represents in the Old Testament the priestly role of offering the prayers of the people up to God. And so they would go in, the priest would go in, he would light the incense, and as the smoke rises up, it was symbolic of the prayers rising up into heaven. And so in that sense, the frankincense speaks of the priestly role. And we know that Jesus is referred to as our great high priest, the priestly role that this baby would play. The final gift they bring is myrrh. Now myrrh was a bitter herb. And myrrh was used, this herb was used to dress a body for burial. You didn't put it on your food or anything like that. It was used to dress a body for burial. And so in that way, this prophetically points to the fact that this king would go undergo a death on behalf of the people. And again, not the most practical gifts, but they are a statement of faith by these wise men of the life, death, and reign of this baby that is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And so they bring these three gifts. Now notice also in verse 12, I mentioned this already, but it says in verse 12 that they were warned in a dream not to return back to Herod. So Herod sent them on the way, and he said, make sure you come back and let me know where he is so I can come and worship them. But they're warned in a dream not to return. And so they go back to their own country. Notice what it says, by another way. Perhaps they were clueless at the, the facial expression of Herod, the sign, maybe he was a good poker player, and they didn't have any suspicions. Either way, after this dream, it becomes evident to them that Herod is up to no good. And so instead of returning the way they came to go back to their homeland there, they return back to their country, as it says in verse 12, another way. Now, as their name implies, these wise men... They show a lot of wisdom that I think we can glean from them and learn from them. And here's a couple of things, and they all have to do with the idea of worship. Number one is this, that these guys, they were not just satisfied with looking at a star and admiring a star. 
But they did something about the star's appearance. And that is they set out to follow it to where it might lead. And so I think the connection that we would make is that star, the appearance of that star, so to speak, is sort of that inclination. Something catches our attention. Something draws us in. And the Lord is doing a work. And for many people, they just say, oh, that's interesting. But what these guys do is they say, that is interesting. And they follow the star and they go the direction that the Lord is leading them. The second thing that I notice about these guys demonstrating their wisdom is that they persevere in the search. So they don't look at it and they'll say, wow, look at that star. That's far away. I'm not going down there. That takes too much time. They don't get to Jerusalem and say, what, no Jesus here? No king here? Eh, I'm leaving. But they persevere in their search. They weren't satisfied to just get so far along the way. Then they come to the chief priests, they come to the religious leaders, and those guys seem disinterested. They're not really that moved by it. Oh, the Messiah? Yeah, Bethlehem. Yeah, good luck. Let us know how it goes. Now, many people follow the lead, if you will, of the religious leaders. And if the religious leaders aren't that interested, well, then why should I be that interested? But these guys don't stop there. And so, yeah, everyone else may not be interested. All of their peers may not be interested. All of their friends may not be interested, but I'm interested. And I'm going and I'm finding this star and I'm finding what's at the end of this star. I appreciate that about them. Third thing that we see about these wise men, when they get there, what do they do? They actually worship. So they could have come to the place where the house where Jesus and his family was and they could have peeked in. They could have said, very interesting. That's quite a sight we've seen. And took off. Or they could cast themselves down as they did and worship the child that was before them. And then the final thing we notice about worship that these wise men demonstrate to us is that worship costs them dearly. And so these guys do not come to worship empty-handed. They don't come to worship so that they can get something from it. But they come to worship and they present their treasures to this child king. Does that speak to you? Do any of those things speak to you about how you worship the Lord? Are you merely satisfied with looking at Jesus, admiring Jesus, or are you willing to do something about Him and His claims? Do you persevere in your search? Do you agree with the Scripture that says, you will seek Me and you will find Me when you search for Me with all of your hearts? What does that mean for a Christian? For somebody that's already been born again? Somebody that's already come to the cross, recognized their sin, received salvation into the life, and have been washed and cleansed. What does it mean for that person to seek Him diligently with all of their heart that we might find Him? It means digging in. It means essentially saying, I'm not leaving unless you bless me. As we see that example in the Old Testament. And here these guys, they demonstrate that. Does your worship demonstrate that? Do you persevere in your search? Do you do everything that is humanly possible, so to speak, to put yourself in a position that you won't leave that place until you find Him? Do you love the Lord with all your heart? Or are you keeping a bit back for yourself? Lord, I think I've been more than generous. I've given you 75% of myself. I say, yeah, you have. But boy, that 25%, you're missing out. Seek me diligently with all your heart. And let me ask you this question. Does worship cost you? Now, I'm not merely talking about money but I'm not, not talking about money either. Jesus said this, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And you can learn a lot about a person by how they spend their money, how they spend their time, how they spend their resources. And so we ask ourselves, are we honoring the Lord with our giving? 
But I think more importantly, what I'm speaking about is this. I am speaking about your life. Because the Apostle Paul, he says this, Romans 12, 1, he said, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. In another place, Jesus declared, and the statement that he makes is designed to be hard to hear. It was designed to offend some people. It was designed to weed out some people. It's a tough word to hear. Jesus said to his disciples this, he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, let him take up his cross, and let him follow me. And I've mentioned it before, the cross was an implement of death. If you were taking up a cross, that meant you were on your death march, walking that green mile, so to speak, and the end of it was your execution. And so Jesus then makes this tough statement. He says, you want to come after me and you want to follow me. What it means to do that is to die. That's a rough statement. Following the Lord and worshiping the Lord in truth involves us laying down our lives in sacrifice. The idea is this, that in light of all that He has done, as the NIV says, it is our true and our proper worship to lay down our lives. And these guys, they demonstrate that. That worship is costly. And in this instance, when I say worship, I'm not talking about coming in a gathering of people and the opening set of songs. That's not what I'm talking about, worship. I'm talking about having a life that brings glory and honor and praise to our Savior. That's what it means to worship. So you can worship the Lord while you're going about your daily walk. You can mow your lawn and worship the Lord. Just in the, the way you do it. You can work your job and worship the Lord. You can raise your kids and worship the Lord. And that's going to be costly to live your life for Christ. Now notice one last thing about these wise guys. It comes from verse 12. And that is that they return another way. I told you the reason why is because they were on to Herod's schemes here. But I think there's a point of application for us in this. And that is this, that all true worshipers that come to Jesus never return back the way by which they came. No one who meets Christ with a sincere heart ever returns back the same way. Jesus would say this, Matthew chapter 7. Jesus would say essentially these words, you will know a tree by the fruit that it bears. Now I'm not trying to say that you're going to come to Jesus and all of those sin habits will be suddenly gone. What I'm talking about this, what I'm talking about is the sanctification process that that has begun. That all of those who truly meet and worship Jesus leave with the Holy Spirit having, having entered into their lives and the conviction of that Spirit prompting them to abandon sin. So I'm reminded of the words that are found in the book of James. It says this, if anyone is a hearer of the word, you probably know the passage, and not a doer, that person is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror, looks intently at his face in a mirror, looks at himself and then goes away at once and forgets what he was like. You see, a true worshiper comes. So whether it's to these services on a Sunday, whether it's to your daily devotional time, whether it's to that prayer group or that accountability group that you are a part of, a true worshiper, when he or she gets up to leave that time, having been in the presence of the Lord, will most definitely return another way. They'll be convicted. And then in response to that conviction, they will leave changed. And that's what we see is happening to these guys. They went and they worshiped the Lord, and then they returned back another way. 
We've been talking a lot about this. We have to develop the habit of saying yes to the Lord in the small things. That's worship. Yes, Lord. You're sovereign. You're in control. You're my Lord. I call you that. I'll do what you tell me to do. That's what it means to leave changed. Now we've got to get moving. Verse 13, let's pick up. Verse 13 says, Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, and he said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and he took the child and his mother by night, and he departed to Egypt, and he remained there until the death of Herod. So not only are the wise men warned in a dream, but we see here that an angel of the Lord comes to Joseph as well, and reveals to him the next step that he is supposed to take. So he had a, a dream before when we were back in Nazareth. He has another one now. He's told, if you see there in the verse, uh, he's told to flee to Egypt. And Egypt seems like a peculiar place for the family of the Messiah to flee to. That seems like an odd place. Why would we send him to Egypt? But in actuality, it was probably a very logical place for them to go. Uh, in that day and age, there was roughly a million Jews that were living in Egypt. So there was going to be a Jewish community that was there that could uh, interact with one another, they could be welcomed into, and so on. Perhaps more importantly, maybe, is this, that it was outside of the jurisdiction of Herod. So Herod was, Egypt was under the control of Rome too at the time, but it was outside of Herod's jurisdiction. So they got away from the lunatic, uh, and they're in sort of a safe place. And so again, they head off to Egypt. Now, are they wondering once again, God, why aren't you protecting us? Well, we can see, we could answer them and say, He is protecting you. You don't know what's about to happen here in this town. And so He's sending you to a safe place. Notice what Matthew says, not only that, but God's sending them there because this is going to fulfill the Word of God as well. There's another prophecy. This time it says, it says this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt. I have called my son. Now the prophet there is the prophet Hosea. The verse that is being quoted or referenced is Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. And so to fulfill Scripture, Jesus and his family make their way down to Egypt. You know, I find that interesting. If you were to look at all these prophecies that he's going to be from Nazareth, he's going to be born in Bethlehem, he's going to come out of Egypt, they all seem contradictory to one another. How's the Bible going to solve this problem? And you just see in these very natural, just story ways. You're like, yeah, that makes all sense. The way that God navigated all those circumstances. Let's continue, verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he became furious. We read this. And he sent and he killed all the male children in Bethlehem. And in all that region, those that were two years old or under. Excuse me. According to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. And then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. And so here is Herod. I've already painted the picture. A cruel, ruthless man indiscriminately rounding up and killing every male child in Bethlehem and the area around Bethlehem in a desperate attempt to exterminate God's Messiah, the King of the Jews. And when I try and imagine a night like that in a community like ours. So here in Ewing Township, for instance, kids, zero, boys, zero to two years of age. 
you know, if you, you kind of do the math, we, we probably have somewhere about 300, maybe four to 500 boys, zero to two years of age, here in Ewing Township. And then you take your lo local town, Lawrence, Hamilton, wherever it is you may be. Now, Bethlehem in that day, that's a lot of kids, isn't it? Bethlehem in that day had a small population. Even today, Bethlehem's population, it's a city. Everyone knows the name of Bethlehem, but the population of the city is only about 25,000 people. Um, that's smaller than Ewing Township, about 35,000 people. Scholars estimate in Bethlehem in that particular day that there was likely somewhere around 12 to 24 young boys in Bethlehem at the time of this decree. 12 to 24. So in our mind, we think hundreds of kids were killed. 12 to 24. And it's smaller, certainly, on a scale. But no doubt, the mourning was no less as great for those that lost their kids and for all the boys that were killed in that particular town. Now notice what Matthew says in mind. He keeps it in mind. He says, this also fulfilled the Word of God. And he quotes the prophet Jeremiah. And he says that a voice is heard in Ramah and weeping and loud lamentations, Rachel weeping for her children. Now Rachel is a reference back to the beloved wife of the Old Testament Joseph that we read about in, Genesis, in the book of Genesis. Rachel, that woman, that beloved wife, she is sort of representative of the nation of Israel. She was buried in the town of, guess, Ramah, the prophecy that is listed there. And so the idea is that people would come uh, and, and mourn at her, her grave, if you will. And then also the point that the prophet is making, it's as if Rachel, the representative of Israel, is weeping from her grave. Ramah is just outside of the city of Bethlehem. And so, once again, we see a prophecy is fulfilled. This is the third time in this chapter, and there'll be another time before we finish today, that Matthew makes reference to the fulfillment of the Word of God, the prophesied Word of God. And this time he's quoting from Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 15. I bring it up because remember, Matthew's goal is to prove to the Jewish people that this man, Jesus, is the fulfillment of the Jewish prophecies. So every time one of these prophecies is fulfilled, he says, there's another one, there's another one, there's another one. Have I made my point yet? Let me give you another one. Let me give you another one. And so we have, I think, five already fulfilled in the first two chapters. And it'll go on and it'll continue to do that through the book. Well, the passage says, out of Egypt I have called my son. Egypt in the Scriptures is regularly represented to us as sort of a type of our flesh. Spirit, Alive in Christ, our flesh, the old man, that sinful man. Representative of the flesh, our old nature. The days before we began a relationship with Christ. So Egypt is a type of the world. And so it's significant that the Father would send His Son into Egypt so that you and I would be freed, if you will, from Egypt, from the world. 1 John 2.15 says, Love not the world nor the things of the world. Jesus came. He came to deliver us from all those things that are perishing so that we could have life and that we could have eternal life. And so Paul would say this in the book of 2 Corinthians. He would say that he became sin. Jesus became sin in this world. He went to Egypt, if you will. He became sin that knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of Christ. The Scripture is very clear. Some people, you know, hey, what's the Bible about? And some, some people just throw out things, it's about God in the sky with lightning bolts trying to get us if we step out. That's not what the Bible is about. 
Essentially, you boil it all down. What's the Bible about? The Bible is about the Lord's desire that none would perish. And the interesting thing in our passage today is a number of different people are encountered with that message. And so you see Herod is brought face to face with it. The wise men are brought face to face with it. The chief priests and the scribes are brought face to face with it. And the thing that we see I find interesting is the varied responses of all of those people that are put face to face with this idea that God doesn't want anybody to perish. It's not really surprising to me because in our day, people have the same types of responses to the offer of salvation. Some, many of us, we respond in worship as the wise men did. Our hearts are touched. The Lord bows our knee. And we fall down and we recognize that He indeed is the Savior. We accept His gift of salvation. And we begin to walk in a relationship with Him, looking for the day when He will take us home and we'll spend eternity rejoicing in the fact of His majesty. Many of us have done that. Some, however, that we come in contact with, perhaps some here, and I don't, I don't assume that everyone here has a relationship with Christ. You may know a lot about Him. But some are like Herod. And they demonstrate sort of an open hostility and hatred to Jesus. But I think most people in our day and in our age, they respond as the chief priests and the scribes did. And that is, they respond with indifference. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, he's over there. Let me know how it goes. Hope it's a good trip. Be safe. You know, and that's it. Their hearts aren't driven to go and wash, worship him. And sadly, the result is this. That those folks, just like Herod, Herod, no problem, I understand. These folks, just like Herod, are going to miss the coming of God's Messiah. And that's a tragedy. And so this morning, as I said, I know that everyone in this room is not a born-again believer and has not fallen down at the feet of Jesus to worship Him. I ask you then, specifically, where are you this morning? And what is your response? Will you be like Herod? And say, you know what, I'm done altogether. I'll never come back here again. Or you like the chief priests and scribes where you just simply say something to the effect of, yeah, whatever. It's very interesting. Thanks for sharing. Or will you be a worshiper that comes and brings your life in a costly offering to the one that is worthy as the wise men did? Let's pray. Father, move in our hearts, Lord. May your Holy Spirit, Lord, be our teacher. Lord, would you bring conviction and Lord, would you bring us to the place of decision? One way or the other, Lord, we will leave this place having determined what we will do with this child king that stands before us. Father, if we are believers, I pray that you would draw us into a greater place of worship. Lord, that you would put your finger heavily upon that area in our hearts that we've been keeping back for ourselves. Essentially saying, Lord, you can have all of this, but this I'm keeping back for me. Lord, we know that that worship is lacking and it's, it's being hindered. Lord, we pray that you would change that this morning. Father, we pray for the one that is wrestling now with either being indifferent, openly disdaining, or giving in and laying their life down and saying, I'm yours. I accept you as Savior and Lord. Lord, do that work within their hearts. We pray that they would be drawn to you and you'd bend their knee. Minister to us, Lord, in these remaining minutes together, we pray in Jesus' name.